We are dealing with some very weighty, heavy matters. These are days in which the Word of God is under direct assault by the media, by academia, by the political world, almost a unanimous cacophony of voices trying to say that the Word of God is irrelevant, old-fashioned, out of date, and really hateful and nasty and mean and unacceptable. Biblical morality is viewed today as something that is socially and culturally unacceptable. But we want to look at these vital issues of the day in the light of God's Word, and uh, we want to know who and why and what, and we need to know what we believe, and we need to know where we stand. Now, we believe with all of our hearts that the Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover, and we believe that it is sufficient in all that it gives us. It's sufficient for everything we need to know for life and for godliness, and it is authoritative when it speaks because it is the Word of God. And we unashamedly believe that. We believe the Bible is a supernaturally inspired book uh, given to us so that we might know the heart and the mind of God. We believe that, and we have good reason to believe that. It is a life-transforming book. We've been dealing with the subject of, uh, of morality or the basic subject, subjects are, that are in discussion in our culture on morality, marriage, sexuality, and God. And uh, last Lord's Day, we talked about the matter of gender, about the matter of gender. I want to remind you again, I want to remind you again, that we are living in, in an anti-scientific day and age, culturally and morally. I heard one of the experts on KCBS this morning being, <clears throat> being interviewed, <clears throat> and he was talking about a segment of our society that appeals largely to and bases its life and philosophy largely on science. And I said to myself, now that is an erroneous position. What is known as science in this country is no longer dependably science at all. It is the opinion of people in the scientific world, but it is not the science itself. It is not the science itself. We've been going through this COVID thing, and the drumbeat of fear and terror just continues on week after week and month after month. We have another variant. We've got to be afraid now. You're going to die. Your vaccine may not be any good. You have to just double up on all your precautions. I've been hearing this. And then I read in the paper this week, here's the science. We had three days, and maybe more, because they were still counting on. We had three days in the seven-county Bay Area. That's, that's six or seven million people. We had three days recently there was not a single death from COVID and six or seven million people. Did you hear what I said? That was in the Chronicle. Not a single death among six or seven million people in the Bay Area for three days in a row. And maybe four, I don't know what happened on the fourth day because they were counting up to the third day and 
It hadn't gotten to the fourth yet. Now, is that what you call a pandemic? What's the science on this thing? Last, last figure I had is one in San Francisco is one out of 5,000 people that have the COVID. And people are living all around us in fear and in terror. I don't want people to die. I don't want people to get sick. But I think it's, it's worse for people to live in avid fear and terror than it is to get a disease that won't kill them. So we're living in a day they appeal to science. This is the science. This is the science. And then they tell us that we've got five or six genders. I wonder what anatomy they studied. I, I, wonder, I wonder where they got their studies in science. You laugh. People seriously believe that. They wrote the book, Heather Has Two Mommies. I've never, I don't think there's one out of all the billions of the world, and there's not one person of all the billions in the world that has two mothers. Not, one, not a single person. Science, you say you go by the science. If you go by the science, then believe the science, and the science and God's word line up. They line right up. If you say that you believe in science and you believe in five genders, don't talk to me about science anymore. You have no credibility to me. If you talk to me about the marriage of same sex, you don't have to have a PhD in plumbing to know that the parts don't fit. Science? You know the Hebrew word, don't you? Some of you do and some of, some of you don't. The Hebrew word is bach, lo, ni, baloney. Bach, lo, ni. And the media is complicit in all of this. The academia is complicit in all of this. And the majority is complicit in all of this who have the microphone and all of us people who don't have a way to advertise what we believe. We're left out in the cold and we're looked down on. They look down our nose as if we are anti-science. It's a lie. It's a lie. We're going to talk about marriage. I'm going to talk to you out of God's word. This is a difficult subject. Now, the reason I find difficulty in preaching on this is because I'm a male. I'm a man. I've never experienced what it is to be a female. And I never will. And if you're a woman, you've never experienced what it is to be a man, and you never will. And so when we deal with the subject, my responsibility is if God will help me by his Holy Spirit, I don't want to take a male viewpoint or a female viewpoint. I want to take the divine viewpoint of this all. That's the viewpoint that informs us as to where the lay of the land is. It's not how I feel about like being a man or a husband. It's what God says he wanted and what God says he did and what God says or the reasons God said he did it. And if I can take God's word literally, then I can figure out who I am as a man. You can figure out who you are as a woman. We can figure out why in the world we are what we are and we, because we're not what we aren't. We're what God made us. But what did he make us to be? And why did he make us that way? And when we look at marriage, we're living in an age 
I saw something I could not believe yesterday. I was, I was, I looked up, on, I was on YouTube. I found out you can get a lot of valuable information about all of these Persian kings in the Old Testament. And one of them was Artaxerxes, or it was Xerxes, really, not Artaxerxes, but Xerxes, who in the book of Esther is Ahasuerus. He was the king where Esther became queen and where Vashti was thrown away. And I saw people taking the book of Esther and using it to teach that Vashti was the, Vashti was the first feminist. She, had, she, had, she, she was willing to take her stand as a woman and say no to Ahasuerus. And to draw the line, if you please. And they were making a hero out of her rather than, that's not where the emphasis of the book of Esther is. Amazing what goes on. So we're living in this, I call it a feminoid day and age. Now, may I say that in the, in the, under the auspices of Bible teaching, women have been abused and there have been things in relationship that biblically have not been proper. Any relationship in marriage that does not give primary honor to the woman is not right. And any relationship in marriage that does not give proper headship to the man is not right. And if you put it all in God's order, it works. But it's got to be God's order. And so when we look at this thing, it is hard for us because we are in a day and age in which they say we are sexist, we, we, we are, we're just all out of touch with reality. These are the days of women's rights, men's rights, these rights, those rights, and, and we're trying to rearrange the whole social order in the name of scientific advancement. We've been educated in this system. When we turn on the TV, that's what we are told. When we pick up the news and the magazines, that's what we are told. When the politicians are campaigning, that's what we are told. So when the pastor gets up and teaches the Word of God, it sounds like he's out of touch with reality, but he's in touch with the only reality if he's in touch with God's Word. God's Word is reality. It is the only reality. And that's why I wrote out or I, I, I printed out this page of scripture references. So you have a page there that has Romans 11.33 on it. Romans 11.33. <clears throat> oh, the deeps. I like to word the word the deeps, the depth. Boy, the ocean is deep. Oh, the deeps of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now stop there, if you will. The deeps of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. Notice Paul didn't say the deeps of the wisdom of man, the deeps of the wisdom of academia, the deeps of the wisdom of the philosophers, the deeps of the wisdom of the educators, the deeps of the wisdom of the scientists. He didn't say that. He said the deeps 
of the wisdom and knowledge of the Creator. When God got done creating everything in Genesis 1, God saw that it was very good. May I ask you a question? If it was very good, was it to everybody's benefit that was involved? Yes or no? All right. The deeps of the riches. What is riches? It's wealth. This is something that enhances life. This is not something that subtracts from life. This is not something that, that makes marriages less than to be desirable. That This is something that enhances and enriches life. God is not in the business of subtracting from life. He's in the business of adding to it. Hear me. Hear me. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out they are unfathomable, they are inscrutable. Even the most intelligent of mankind does not have the capacity to figure out the mind and the heart of God. So while we're giving our PhDs out in human wisdom and trying to make God look like a stupid, errant fool, as if we figured things out, if God would listen to us and God would reconstruct his sociology, we would be better off as a human race. Paul says, Your brain is too small. God doesn't fit inside it and you can't figure this thing out. And then you proclaim yourself the social expert. You are the social scientist. Wow. Dear people, we need to understand the limitation of the capacity of our brains. One of the dangers of theological seminary is that that the, the mind goes on, goes on this ego trip. And we think we're going to dissect the Trinity and we're going to figure God out and we're going to figure out all the details of election and predestination and free will and we're going to put God into a box and God is going to fit so so that he does everything according to how we have got it figured out. But the problem is our mind doesn't have the capacity for that. What we have is a capacity to receive truth with the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it and then to trust it so we can obey it and put it to practice. Our relationship with God is wrong in these social issues. If our morality is wrong, our relationship with God is wrong. Our relationship to science is wrong. Our relationship to truth is wrong. Our relationship to benefit and blessing is wrong. Oh, the deeps of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable are His ways. Who has Verse 34, look at it now in your sheet. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And that demands the answer, nobody. We are not smart enough. We have a capacity to receive revelation and to believe revelation, but we don't have the capacity to understand all revelation. Science cannot deal, as we said last week, it cannot deal with the origin of this world. Nobody was there, nobody saw it, nobody measured it. 
There is no such thing as scientific evolution. Nobody ever has seen evolution. Nobody's witnessed it. It's never been done even when they've tried to do it. Nobody has seen creation by an act of God either. It was there instantaneously. Nobody saw the processes. Nobody witnessed it. The only way you know is if the one who did it tells you how he did it and what he did. That's the only way you can know. You have to know by revelation. It's impossible intellectually or otherwise to know. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his advisor, his counselor? I know a lot of PhDs that a lot of media people would like to be God's advisor. In fact, they're advising him all the time on the news. Who has first given to him that it may be paid back to him again? You give nothing to God that God hasn't first given you. You never give anything away that God did not gift to you in the first place. Period. Period. Everything you have has been gifted to you by God. Period. Why are we here to worship today? We are here to worship because there is an almighty God who for a reason totally inexplicable and unknown to us loved us enough so that he came in the person of his son, a God who personally came and loved us and died for us. That's why we're here today. We're not here to get brownie points to get to heaven. We are here because we're on our way to heaven because the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're here in praise and thanksgiving. We're here to honor a God who so loved us in this fashion and in this matter, in this manner. Out from him, he's the source, and through him, and to him are all things, to him be the glory. So Isaiah says it in different words, Isaiah 40. Let's take the second paragraph of that on the bottom of the page. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by measure? Who's weighed the mountains in a balance, the hills in a pair of scales? May I ask you a question? Have any of you on your car had a tire that was out of balance? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or am I talking technically beyond your experience? Have, have you had a tire? How many of you have had a tire out of balance? What happens if the, the whole car, boom, 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 the whole car shakes? And Isaiah says, who's the one that weighed the mountains in, in a balance? The earth isn't going, boom, boom, boom. The earth is perfectly balanced. Who did that? Verse 13, look at it, look at the text. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who's given direction to God's Holy Spirit? Who as God's counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Now stop here for just a moment. You say, where are you going with this? I'm going to talk to you about marriage, how he made the man and then he made the woman differently. And for different reasons and different purposes. And you're going to say, but that, that contradicts everything that everybody believes. I don't care. Who is going to give counsel to God in this matter? We're telling the Creator that He couldn't have done it this way because we don't understand it this way. We don't like it this way. We don't want it this way. Our culture does not accept it this way. Who are we? Who do we think we are? What we in essence are doing, hear me, in essence we are making God a man and we are making ourselves God. 
We're doing what happened in Romans 1. We worship the created more than the creator. We place created beings above the one who created them. And the created beings are telling the creator where to get off the train. Am I right or wrong on this? Verse 14, with whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice? Oh, this justice age we are in. God could really learn from these people. And taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding. Why, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're like a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough to burn. It's beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. Regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. God is not impressed. To whom then are you going to liken God? The idol, verse 19. Verse 21, do you not know, haven't you figured this out? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from what? From the beginning. Have you not understood from what? The foundations of the world. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And you can take the Hebrew on that text and you can read it this way. It is he who is enthroned above the vault of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to what? Nothing. And who makes judges of the earth what? Meaningless. I want to tell you people we need to learn what the word reverence means. There are four controlling attributes of God. God is uniquely uncreated. That means everything else is finite. And he alone is infinite. There's no knowledge like God's knowledge, no wisdom like God's wisdom, no understanding like God's understanding. Can we trust him? Can we believe his word with confidence? Can we live with joy? Is that possible? Is that possible? He is uniquely uncreated. Secondly, he is uniquely infinite. Everything else is finite. God does not fit inside the human brain. If he did, he wouldn't be a God at all. Think that one through. If you could comprehend God, you'd be as smart as he is. I've drawn the conclusion that when we get to heaven, we're never going to fully understand God. Because we will continue to be finite. He will continue to be infinite. In the wonders of God and his salvation, we will never fully comprehend. We will spend an eternity learning the greatness and the goodness of God. God is uniquely infinite. God is uniquely triune. This is especially important. This is, this, this is the intensely personal character of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God our Father, God our Redeemer, God our Enabler and Helper. 
three in one. Let us make man in our image, in eternal fellowship. God is intensely personal. He is intensely relational. And when you come to creating the man and the woman, you're going to find out that this intensely relational God created man and woman for an intensely relational reason, not for a sexual reason. That's a part of the relation. But for an intensely relational meaning. Sex is not about sex. It's about relationship. So the meaning of marriage and the meaning of sex is tied in to the fact that God is uniquely triune, intensely personal. Marriage is intensely relational. It's not good for the man to be alone. But I'm not going to make another one like him. I'm going to make his opposite. That's what the word means. Because he doesn't need another one like him. He needs something that's opposite him. That's why you don't... That's why you find your wife's frustrating. And that's why you find your husband's frustrating. God knew that you needed somebody different than you. I'm waiting. Okay. So, God is uniquely triune. And God is uniquely holy. That is his absolute, infinite integrity. Never does anything that's less than good. Always honors that which is right and good. Everything he does is good. Absolutely. We need to learn reverence for God. We need to quit measuring God by our own personal experiences. We need to quit measuring God by the opinions of man. Man is not the measure of God. God is the measure of man. It is so important that when we study issues where the culture is at war with God, and our culture is at war with God, the so-called scientific world, I don't mean the world of real science, I mean the world of scientists that are opinionated against God. I'm not talking about the science. But in the midst of a world and a culture that is at war with God, we need to stand not in awe of the world that's at war with God, we need to stand in awe of the God that created the world of science. And we need to say, look, Nobody's wisdom compares with God's wisdom. Nobody's knowledge compares with God's knowledge. Nobody's power compares with God's power. So this is the introduction to the sermon for today. But if I didn't give you this introduction, what would you be doing with what I teach you in the sermon? That's my question. Where would you be going in your mind? With what would you be comparing what I'm telling you? You would say, but, 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 but. There ain't no buts when we come before God. God is the absolute sovereign of all. The absolute sovereign of all. I think what I need to do is introduce the message, but I, I want to, let's, let's take the outline again. I've got a review, and if I just get through the review, then we'll, then we'll, We'll go on with the sermon next Sunday, Lord willing. 
On the first page of your outline, I have the text in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power resulting in a divine rescue. And it talks here. It talks here about the light that God gives, about who he is, and about his word, his ways. And it talks about how man does certain things with this knowledge and this revelation that God gives to men. God reveals himself to everyone in nature. He reveals himself to everyone in his word. Those two are, those are the two main sources of revelation. And what man does when God reveals himself in Romans 1, he's talking about the pagan world here, and he just says, look, they reject God, they reject his revelation. There's a three-point outline, and I've given this to you. Romans chapter 1, the text you have there, and by the way, that's an expanded translation of my own on that. Light is revealed, L-I-G-H-T, knowledge of God. Light is revealed. Secondly, light is rejected. And then thirdly, light is removed. It's a fearful thing. It's happening in our culture before our very eyes. Three issues clearly addressed in Romans 1. Number one, at the bottom of the page, page the first page, God is uniquely uncreated. Who and what is this God? He's the created, he's the creator of everything else. Everything apart from himself is the product of his personal creative activity. Now the second issue is, what did he create? Why did he create it? How did he create it? It's creation in the created order. What has he done and why has he done it? Why did he make the man and the woman? Why did he create sexuality? Why did he do these things? And you'll notice the highlight under number two. Everything without exception, everything in all of creation originated where? Read the notes. Where did it originate? In the heart and mind of God. Now listen, when we're dealing, when we're dealing with the revelation in chapter 1 of Genesis, he creates the man and the woman. But in chapter 2, we have a detailed explanation of how he did what he did in chapter 1. And why he did it that way. And when we are dealing with this, we need to understand that what is happening there did not originate in a fundamental Baptist church. It did not it did not originate in a it did not originate in a religious denomination of any kind. It did not originate in a moral statement that somebody put out. It originated now hear me. This, this is why morality becomes important. It originated in the heart and mind of God. And when we think about it, and we deal with it, and we make decisions about it, and judgments about it, we, we need to do so in the light that it originated, not in the heart of mind of some religious leader, some religious man, Muhammad or Buddha, or some Baptist leader. It originated in the heart and mind of God. That ought to make a difference. And then number three on page two, there we, we have man's response to God and his created order. And I've highlighted below, they boast themselves to be wise. They reject the glory of the immortal God. They choose rather to themselves the image in the form of mortal, corruptible man. They exalt man above God. 
Verse 26, they reject the truth of God. They choose rather for themselves the lie and treat as sacred and serve as sacred that which was created rather than the creator who made everything. And thirdly, verse number 28, they made a calculated decision not to be having God as an integral part of their body of knowledge and thinking. This is true of almost all of academia in the United States of America today. Not all, but most. Now you'll notice under that there's this underlying statement, there is only one absolute standard. Notice the word absolute. It's not up for grabs. It will not change. It cannot be changed. Whether I believe it or not is immaterial. It's true whether I believe it or not. I can not believe it, but it's still true. I can have trouble with it and say I don't like it that way. It's still true. There's only one absolute standard for and definition of morality. And it has to do with reality. Any basis, any, any morality not based on reality is no morality at all. And we said that the foundation of all morality is God's created order. How and what and why he made it. That's what determines what's right and what's wrong. I don't just look at things and say, well, religiously, I think this is good, I think this is bad. That that won't work. Nobody has any right to tell me what to do. Well, uh, maybe the one who created you might have something to say about that before it's all done. The foundation of all morality is God's created order. The revelation of all genuine morality is the word of God. The word of the creator and the content of all morality is the plan and purpose of God for his creation. So, absolutely amazing. We're on to page three. Burning moral issues of our time is gender. We talked about that. And at the bottom of the page, you have the notes we preached from last Sunday. Page four. Same. You have God's personal involvement in everybody's existence. Before the foundation of the world, your existence, you existed by name and the heart and mind of God. Your gender was already determined. That didn't happen when your mom and dad got together. That happened in eternity. Before the foundation of the world. God was involved in your gender. God was involved in who and what you are as an individual, to what parents you were born, what nationality, everything about you, genetically. All of this, all of this was determined on the top of page five. Highlighted, therefore we believe that to intentionally alter or change one's physical gender or to live as a gender other than the one assigned at conception is to reject God's right as creator to assign gender to his creatures. Underline that. That's a serious offense. You're telling God to back off. Other than the one assigned at conception is to reject God's right as creator to assign gender to his creatures and it is a personal rejection of his plan to glorify himself through the original gender he assigned to that individual. You need to thank God for your gender. You didn't choose it. You didn't ask for it and you didn't vote on it. But God made you 
the most important, wonderful person you could be, male or female, doesn't matter. And one is not important than the other. The roles are different, but one is not more important than the other. They're equally important, but they're different. Now, the issue of marriage in the created order. Just a statement at the top uh, under, under that on page 5. We believe and affirm that marriage is an institution ordained by God and prescribed by Scripture to be a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman physically created in these respective genders by God. We believe God intended heterosexual marriage to be an enduring covenanted relationship established before himself and man to propagate the human race, lovingly express healthy relational and sexual intimacy, and picture the covenant relationship he has with all genuine believers. Now, I can't get there today, but when we get to the fact Paul said, this is a great mystery, and he's talking about the husband loving the wife and and sacrificing himself for the benefit of his wife, and and the wife living in submission to her husband uh, as her husband's helper. But he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. This is not just a cultural matter. This is a spiritual matter. Deeply spiritual in the heart and mind of God. I kind of get amazed when I read through Hebrews and he's talking about the tabernacle in the the Old Testament. And then he says, there's a tent which God pitched, not man in heaven. And God said to Moses, now when you make this tabernacle on earth, be sure that you use the the pattern of the real original one that's in heaven. And what he does is he takes the earthly to make the pattern of the heavenly, and marriage is a pattern of the heavenly truth of Christ and his church. And it's supposed to picture that. It has real meaning in the heart and mind of God. Not many married couples find that meaning in their relationship. Hmm? Hmm? Didn't Paul say that? Didn't I read that correctly out of Ephesians 5? Did I? Did I read it right? Did I read it correctly? Come on, I want some commitment here. There's just too much, too much wavering going on. So you have all of this in the background. Now, I haven't timed it. If I get going, you're going to be here till 1 o'clock. How many want to be here till 1 o'clock? One, one person. All right, you, you, you didn't get voted out. Okay. But we're going to look at the order in which they were created. There was an order of creation. And this happened on the, on the sixth day. There were purposes, purposes, specific purposes, why God created the man. Now, God's creation of man was separate from his creation of the animals. Totally different. When God made the animals, I am assuming, although I think it's not stated biblically, I'm assuming that all the animals were made out of the dust of the ground, male and female. Because there were two, male and female, took two of every kind into the ark. God knew what he was doing. There would be no animals if there weren't male and female. So, but I think they were all created out of the dust of the ground. But when it came to man, he didn't do it that way. He, he took a special care and did a different order and made things differently when it came to man. That's very interesting. The purpose for which man and woman were created and the processes were different. I'm talking about that already. The processes were different. And then, when we get down to the bottom of page 6, there is an exclusive nature of the marriage 
order. So just absolutely amazing as to, and then on page seven, there's a sacred nature of the married order. And then we're going to look at the violations later of the marriage order. Okay. So now all of this, all of this we are predicating on the fact, please don't go to sleep yet. All of this we're predicating on the fact, hear me now, that God really has the right to be God. Yes or no? Yes. God has the right to be God. And I have no right. I have no right, period. It does not exist. I have no right to second-guess God. I can ask the question, why? Because, and God may give me some answers. He may not give me the answers, but he may give me some answers. And he does. Some of the whys are involved in this, but not all of them. The whys go way beyond anything I think that's revealed in Scripture. But God is God. And he's to be worshipped and honored. And we are to hold him in awe. We are to hold him in awe and in reverence. It's not my business to say, God, why did you let this happen to me in my life? Why did you make me like this? I don't like, I want to be like so-and-so. Why, why don't I have all, why does he have all the talents? And why does she have all of this? And I don't, why, 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 why did he have all those advantages? And I don't have them. This is the justice movement. Everybody's supposed to have the same advantages, you know. I notice there's more than one flower in this arrangement up here. Why didn't God make them all the same? Because God had different needs and different purposes to fulfill in making us who he made us to be and putting us where he put us. And the wonderful, amazing, marvelous thing is this. Listen to me. The thing that puts everybody... Are you listening? The thing that puts everybody on an equal footing is the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. It matters not how troubled and, and, and beat up and battered and bad your past is. The work of the cross, number one, cancels out all the sin, all the wrong, cancels all of that out. And it puts the power of God in your life to turn all of this upside down so that what should have destroyed your life ultimately will end up blessing your life and giving you a greater ministry than you ever thought possible. The work of the cross is the great equalizer. Not a one of us here is any more righteous than any other of us. Jesus Christ is our only righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All of us, doesn't matter the advantages or disadvantages of life, doesn't matter what we consider to be our strengths or our weaknesses, it doesn't matter because of the same power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. It's God's power resulting in divine rescue. I like that word rescue. Resulting in divine rescue to everyone who believes. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? 
And that's the question. And if you have not, right where you're sitting right now, you should cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me today from my sin. Rescue me. From the worthlessness and the uselessness of a life that's lived outside of the knowledge and will of God. Give yourself to divine purpose today. And if you have a past that's troubled and negative all over the place, I would say, now God, take this life of mine and in the power of your Holy Spirit and through the powerful change your word will bring to my life, take my life and turn it upside down for your glory. It's yours. Do it now, God. It's yours. I give it to you so that you can do that. That's what we need to do today. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, touch and change our lives today. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I beg of you, if you've never received the Lord Jesus, if you're not sure that you've been saved from your sin, right where you are, call, cry out, call unto God and say, Lord Jesus, save me today. I receive you, Jesus, as my personal Savior and Lord. You died for my sins, you rose again, you're alive. Come and save me today in your great power. And if you're a believing child of God, give your life to God God can do wonders with your life, but he can't do them if you don't give him your life as a believer. Present yourself to God today, saying, now look, God, take my life. If it's in a mess, give the mess to him. Whatever it is, give your life to God. Give it all to him. And say, Lord, take my life today and use it for your, for your amazing and marvelous glory. Heavenly Father, do that work in our hearts today. And I pray that through the day, you'll manifest your power and your glory in all of our lives. As the choir rehearses, as we fellowship around the tables, I pray, O God, you will give us an awesome, an awesome reverence for who and what you are, for what you have created in each of us as individuals, for your moral for your moral instruction to reveal to us who we are and why we are what we are and what we're supposed to do with what you've made us to be. God, I pray, be glorified greatly. Be glorified greatly in every life. I pray it now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.